Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, and welcome back to another breakdown. Today, we're going to be covering The Mandalorian Episode 3, Season 3. We have a lot to talk about. It was a very long episode, so let's get right to it. And then I'll give you my theories at the very end. As we begin tonight's episode, we start right off where we ended last week, above the waters on Mandalore, as Din wakes up with Grogu after Bo-Katan saved him from falling to the bottom. So we finally get some understanding that he fell to the bottom simply because he didn't think it was so deep where Bo-Katan tells him that it never actually used to be. The Empire's bombs created seismic disturbances that created a deeper hole in the ground. She asked Din if he saw anything down there, meaning if he saw the Mythosaur, of course, and he says nothing. She asks if he saw anything alive, and he says, like what? She says nothing, and they get out of there. So the reason for this is that she is being very coy and mysterious because she doesn't want him to know that the Mythosaur exists which was long to have been believed to be extinct, or at least they thought it was, for thousands of years. So I think her plan is to go back there and tame the Mythosaur so she may ride it. Doing so would of course bring her tons of street cred, so to speak, much more than holding the Darksaber of rightful combat victory, and allow her to control Mandalore and win the respect of all Mandalorians of all different factions. She of course intends to rule Mandalore once again, and the Mythosaur is her way to do this. This is why she keeps it a secret in fear that Din will try to ride it too and succeed. And of course, there's a ton to say at the very end of the episode where they go back to the armor. However, of course, we have like 40 minutes of Dr. Pershing to talk about, so I'm just going to talk about that and then we can jump to you know the meaty stuff after. So they head back to Kalevala, the world in the Mandalore system nearby where Bo-Katan is stationed on. They are ambushed by TIE interceptors which are much more powerful than TIE fighters. Bo-Katan reveals that the Empire doesn't like it when Imperial warlords get scammed. So they engage in an awesome dogfight in the skies of Kalevala once Din gets into the N1 Naboo Starfighter. And we see just how fast and maneuverable this ship is, truly the Lamborghinis of starships. Bo-Katan takes some evasive maneuvers and pilots her way to blasting the final TIE Interceptor. That is, of course, TIE bombers show up and blast her castle to ruins, sadly. She is devastated. She speeds after them and takes them out as we see them come to a massive fleet of TIEs heading out to their direction. So they get out of there and head into space. They blast off into hyperspace where we transition to Coruscant. Now, before we talk about the whole Dr. Pershing arc, I want to say which, or rather why, are these Imperial TIE fighters going after Bo? Who is behind this? Could it be Moff Gideon? Could it be Thrawn himself? Now, during the watch party, there was someone who said that the transponder looked like it belonged to Thrawn's fleet, or it was something to do with Thrawn's fleet. So if any of you caught that, let me know, but I didn't seem to catch anything. But that would be pretty wild if this is sort of a lead into Thrawn. But my thinking is that it could very well be Moff Gideon, and he did escape on his way to the court hearing. 
Okay, so here we are on Coruscant. Beautiful to see this planet again. Major prequel vibes. And of course, it's beautiful to see it at night, even more so than the day. And of all places, we get to go to the opera and we see it from the outside. I was immediately super happy. We know this is where Palpatine told Anakin about the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise in Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith. As we enter, we travel up the same steps as we did in Episode 3. However, this time, of course, it's with the Imperial who is loyal to Moff Gideon, Elia, otherwise known in this episode as G-68. If you remember, she was the one at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2 on his ship. We now see that she is loyal to the New Republic, or so we're led to believe, and Dr. Pershing is speaking to the massive audience here. If you don't remember who Dr. Pershing is, he was very close and responsible to the child, to baby Yoda, to Grogu in the first season. He cared for Grogu, it seemed, quite a lot, and didn't treat him like just another science experiment from the Empire. He tells the people that the cloning technology that he was using was being utilized for an individual to secure more power for himself. Now I think he's either talking about Palpatine or he's speaking of Moff Gideon, who may have been acting on his own interests or on Palpatine's contingency orders. Now we know that this all ends up in the sequel trilogy, unfortunately, to my belief and my opinion, which means that cloning is a very important thing when it comes to Snoke and Palpatine cloning himself a million different times to the point where he gets his son, who is not Force-sensitive, and then having Rey. So Pershing claims that he regrets what he did, and as he does this, he touches his ear, which I'm kind of thinking is his lying tick. Whenever he lies, it seems he touches his ear, and we see this later in the episode when he's speaking to the droid and touches his ear during a clear lie. Now, his ear is mangled because Cara Dune actually shot his ear or grazed his ear as she was saving his life when he was being held at Blaster Point. So he talks to the crowd about his sins of working for the Empire, using the technology of the Kaminoans and their cloning abilities. He speaks about his breakthrough, where he learned a way to harness the most wanted and favorable genes of two hosts to create the perfect specimen. This is what they did with the clones with Jango Fett. The clones were altered not just in their age acceleration, but also in their ability to be more obedient to their leaders, because of course Jango wasn't. And this is what Jango meant by having an unaltered clone. He wanted a clone that didn't age fast, but also wasn't different in any sort of personality trait either. So he discusses creating clones from just one strand of DNA. This means he could clone anybody from the slightest amount of any sample. Now, in the episode 9 novel, and I know for those who don't like the sequel trilogy, but I, I gotta inform you of everything that I know. I have read the episode 9 book just to get as much information as I could and make sense of it all, which the books unfortunately make so much more sense of the film than the actual film did, which was done very poorly. The book describes that Palpatine and his Sith cultists were essentially doing a ton of gene splicing in order to come up with these abominations and these experiments that later led to Snoke. But a lot of it was a lot of gene manipulation and gene splicing, and I believe that Pershing was involved in this project, or at least his work was. And this is why I believe Elia wanted to melt his mind at the very end so that he would forget everything that he did. So with that, Pershing was indeed doing some sort of gene splicing on Grogu, I think, to take his force sensitivity or his old age and throw it into another vessel. So that could be Snoke or it could be something entirely different that the Empire was trying to create. I could see Jon Favreau wanting to create something new rather than going to the sequel trilogy and just, you know, having it be Snoke. 
I think it would be much more interesting if we had a character in between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy that, you know, was really powerful. Pershing heads to Amnesty Housing. This is where the New Republic has housed all of their employed workers. Now, these people aren't necessarily just New Republic workers. They are all former employees of the Empire. They're former Imperials who have turned a new leaf. The droid tells him to visit the Sky Dome Botanical Garden, and I gotta include this because this was actually in the book Republic Commando Hard Contact. And in the novel, the Sky Dome Botanical Gardens are the site of a very important mission led by a team of clone commandos who must navigate the terrain of the gardens to apprehend a dangerous criminal named Gez Hokan. This was a Trandoshan smuggler and weapons dealer who was thought to be selling weapons to separatists. Pershing arrives and is invited for a drink by a group of random Imperial, former Imperials who are now part of the New Republic, just sitting on a bench, chilling, hanging out, swapping stories. They're all designated with numbers instead of names, like G-68, for example, who worked for Gideon's ship. Pershing goes quiet as he recognizes her, and he tells them that he has seen her working for Gideon on his ship. A couple of the lads discuss rumors with what happened to Gideon, and this is kind of cool because we're getting a bit of an update. I think Gideon was a really cool character, and I think there's a lot of depth to him, so I'd love to learn more about him and maybe he'll show up in some other seasons. Maybe even this one. Some say he escaped en route to the War Tribunal, and another heard he was hooked up to a Mind Flayer machine, which essentially melts your mind if you turn it up high enough and erases your memory. Anyways, G68 says that she's not with Gideon anymore, and the audience all have a very hard time believing her. So they toast and the conversation begins, where G68 says that she'll show Pershing around, befriending him. And he thinks nothing of it. He thinks that she's just being nice. But he has a hard time trusting her because of, you know, who she used to work for. They swap stories about what they miss about the Empire, where some say, you know, the uniforms fit better. Some miss the lights of hyperspace. And Pershing says that he misses the travel biscuits, which he can't get anymore. So they all retire to their dorms and someone rings his doorbell where he answers it and finds a box on the ground full of the yellow biscuits that he was just telling them about that he missed. But who put this there? Of course it was Elia. G68 got them for him, and she's doing this to get on his good side so that he trusts her, which of course leads to him being framed and his mind being wiped. We see Pershing's day job at the New Republic and he's basically pushing pencils. He's got a very boring position, definitely not fulfilling his full capacity of his brain and intelligence. He's kind of seen as a big shot over there and people wonder why he's working at such a low position. He hangs out with G68 as they walk around having some space ice cream. And of course he's holding a blue one and she holds a red one. If that's not foreshadowing for her being evil, I don't know what is. We get to see a bit of a different side of Coruscant. They're at a carnival and it's really fun. She kind of goes on to brainwash him into continuing his cloning research that he was doing with the Empire. He says that the New Republic thinks cloning is unethical. And she says the only thing that is important is helping the future of people. They walk to the peak of Umeit, which is the tip of a mountain on display at the carnival. On a planet so full of metal and stone, organic objects like wood at the Jedi Temple, being of course the Force-sensitive tree we see in the Clone Wars and Tales of the Jedi, or this rock here, are very special and rare. 
We hear the sequel trilogy music play as he goes to touch the rock and the droid tells him not to, possibly a foreshadowing of leading us into the sequel trilogy's cloning story with Snoke and Palpatine and all that. Pershing is questioned by a droid, kind of like a survey, and he answers it. He goes to sit with G68 and tells her that his research in the hands of the New Republic would be very beneficial and good for mankind. But how can he continue? He tells her that he needs a few supplies and she knows how to get it. So at his day job, he tries to salvage some files from the Empire that comes across his desk, but he's told not to and to just basically discard it. He thinks it's ridiculous as the information can really help the New Republic, but they simply refuse to do so because it had any sort of involvement with the Empire. He thinks this is ridiculous. He's getting angry at the New Republic and beginning to resent them for sure. He grabs an Imperial biscuit and we jump to him being questioned again by the robot with the same mundane questions. At the query of whether or not he is feeling a resentment towards the New Republic or not, he pauses, looks down, and rubs his ear. We know he's having issues answering the question, and this is the same ear that he rubbed when he was talking to the people in the opera chambers that he didn't mean to do anything bad when working at the Empire. The robot repeats itself, and he says, no, meaning he has no resentment towards the New Republic, but of course he does for them stopping his research. Heading to G68, he then asks the droid if basically doing something for the greater good of people is more important than anything else and supersedes all other rules. The droid confirms, yes, that's true. So he takes that as a, okay, let's go and continue my research, even though cloning is seen as unethical. Heading to G68, he says, let's continue the cloning work and asks for her help to get the lab equipment. Immediately, the Plagueis theme plays in the background. And this is probably one of the biggest parts of the episode for me because it implies that the ominous tone of Palpatine telling Anakin about Plagueis in the opera could be something that we need to keep an eye on or remember. Does this mean they'll bring Plagueis back in Star Wars? I don't know, but it is John and Dave and they are pretty daring when it comes to lore and doing some crazy stuff. Does it mean it's just a cool theme that's supposed to make us think of betrayal and deceit and Palpatine looming over everything? It's possible. I guess we'll find out for sure. But as I've said, a dark Jedi could come in the Mandalorian, maybe as a clone or some sort of a species generated from Dr. Pershing's work. They head to the train station and get to the scrapyards where the Imperial Star Destroyers are held. This takes about seven minutes or so of hopping trams to avoid ticket droid guards, but I'll save you that. They arrive at the junkyard and that's where she's taking him to collect supplies from the ship. So they enter, she introduces herself as Aliyah and he as Dr. Penn Pershing. Pershing gets to the Imperial lab, grabs what he needs, they hear a noise and get out of there, only to be stopped outside by New Republic police where she grabs the case that he just took from the ship, from the lab, for their mission and gets him arrested. She set him up, she framed him. And next we see him surrounded by someone calamari tied up to a bed as he screams to them that it was a trap, hearkening to, of course, Admiral Akbar's infamous line in Return of the Jedi. To me, I don't like stuff like this because there was a pause where one of the Mon Cala looked at the other one and it's kind of like a, hey, remember that moment in Star Wars? I just don't like moments where Star Wars is trying to make you remember Star Wars. It just takes you out of the whole thing. Anyways, it was funny, whatever. They set Pershing up to a mind flare machine and the Mon Cala operator says it's low voltage and not like a mind flare. In fact, it's used to heal, he says. But the thing is, it depends how much you crank it up to. 
So Aliyah waits until the crew leaves as they turn the mind flare on, and she cranks it up high, erasing his mind and memory. And we, I guess we'll see what happens to him. Finally, we get back on track to the Mando episode. They head to the armor and the Children of the Watch where they're hiding. Din tells Bo to keep her helmet on, as things will go much smoother this way, since the clans, of course, have different beliefs. As they land, we see Paz Vizsla, who wanted to rule Mandalore, having fought Mando for it in the Book of Boba Fett. Losing, of course, and it seems he is teeming with anger as he sees him land with a night owl. More about that in a second. The history between Bo-Katan and Pre Vizsla can be summed up kind of like this. They used to work together, she used to follow Pre Vizsla under Death Watch, who believed that the new Mandalorians lost their way, which was more so violence and conquering. So they waged a civil war, until of course Bo left because she felt that Pre Vizsla was a bit too crazy. And so she joined her sister, which was the leader of the new Mandalorians, Satine Kreez, lover of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Paz Vizsla probably sees her as a major traitor and hates her. So they are approached by all of the Mandos there and Paz leads, telling them to leave as Din is no longer worthy of the creed. He informs Paz Vizsla that he's bathed in the living waters beneath the mines on Mandalore and nobody believes him. They all say, no way, it's poisoned. Bo-Katan speaks up and says she was witness. And who are you, Night Owl, says Paz. Night Owls are just a faction of Mandalorians led by Bo-Katan after she left Pre-Vizsla for his extremist ideologies. It's kind of like a splinter group that she made herself. She announces who she is, and he tells her that she's lost her way as well, and both need to leave as they are apostates. So Din Djarin shows proof from the vial in his pocket, and they send him up to the armorer inside the cave, who is their leader. As she examines the vial of water sampled from the mines and confirms indeed he has bathed in the waters, he is once again a Mandalorian. She says to Bo that she too has joined the Children of the Watch since she bathed in the waters and hasn't removed her helmet. Now I find it curious that the armorer knew right away that it was Bo-Katan. This is very telling. Maybe the armorer knows who Bo is personally. Maybe the armorer with her spikes on her head, or rather horns, was a member of the Maldalorians, as Sam Witwer likes to call them, when Darth Maul ruled Mandalore. I think she might be Rook Cast, who was loyal to Maul after he defeated her former leader, Pre Vizsla, and organized the Mandalorians against Ahsoka during the Siege of Mandalore. That'd be pretty wild, since Bo and Ahsoka are friends and allies, of course, and Rook Cast and Bo Katan, well, are not. We'll see who the armor really is one day. Now, the episode ends with all of the Mandalorians, the children of the Watch, there, kind of congratulating Bo Katan and welcoming her to their tribe. So she accepts this, essentially, and says, okay, well, I'm going to go with it in her head. This is my theory. As we see her look at the skull of the mythosaur, rather, you know, like a sort of fixture on the wall of a mythosaur skull. And the whole thing that's going on here, I'm pretty sure, is that she's just playing the game. She is faking it. She's faking being a children of the watch, a child of the watch. She doesn't care about any of that crap. She thinks it's all superstitious, hokey pokey garbage. So she is merely doing this because she feels if she can win them over and have their trust, once she rules Mandalore by riding the Mythosaur or defeating Din Djarin in combat and taking the Darksaber, many will join her cause and follow her. And this will be her small little army that has begun to form which will later snowball into a much larger one. I think she's playing the long game here, and I think she's very intelligent, and she knows exactly what she's doing. 
She is not to be trusted, and I think she will be a major antagonist in this show. Only to be foiled by an even bigger one, perhaps Moff Gideon returning. That'd be wild. That'd be pretty cool. I think the whole arc with Dr. Pershing was great. Lasted a little bit too long for my liking. I think it could have been summarized a little bit quicker and more concisely, more efficiently. You know how we are with our Mando episodes. We want it to be as much Mando as we can get. It was cool getting some world building and some understanding of how important cloning and how technologically advanced cloning has become in the world of Star Wars. And what exactly that individual was doing to secure power by splicing genes using Dr. Pershing's work to create the most ultimate being, or would I like to think the most ultimate vessel, perhaps? That's my breakdown for tonight's Mandalorian Episode 3, Season 3. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave a like on this video if you did, and I will see you all in the many videos that I'm about to make regarding this episode. There's a lot of stuff we got to talk about concisely in their own videos, so hope you're ready for those, and I'll see you all in them very soon. Until then, remember, my fellow Jedi and Sith friends, the Force will be with you always. <laughs>